Fast Talk. Street Talk. Mike Graham. Fighting the good fight with all his might. Providing a welcome dose of common sense for the common people. Solid Talk. Hot Talk. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. See it. Hear it. Think it. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are, of course, uh, the place where sanity prevails, the place uh, where you will hear the kinds of stories that you care about, the place where you can have your say, where we can have your opinion and we can broadcast it far and wide, not just to the country, not just to the continent, but to the entire world, the entire planet. Uh, can get Talk TV now all over the place in all sorts of different forms. You can listen to it on the radio, uh, you can watch it on television, you can have a look at it on YouTube if you so wish. We've got a whole host of great guests this morning, starting off with Rod Little. Uh, we've got lots of questions for him about all manner of things. We promise not to drone on and on and on about Partygate. I made the misfortunate uh, or the unfortunate decision this morning while I was flicking around uh, while driving through the ridiculous traffic of London. London. Uh, I was trying to find myself somewhere to plant myself for a little while uh, I found myself on what can only be described as one of the rival breakfast shows uh, to this station and they were going on and 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 on about the parties and the sandwiches and the people being sick I mean we're not doing that we're not we're just not simple as that and we'll be talking however about a great many other things e-scooters for a start monkey pox as well um, psycho deck chairs huh Apparently, councils have decided that uh, deck chairs are very dangerous. The Archbishop of Canterbury's name is going to be mentioned because he apparently is on a new moral crusade. He wants to make politics better. Really? Maybe you should try making religion better in the beginning. Helen and Nicklin's going to be here. Helen Dale is here to tell us what happened in Australia. Uh, we'll take her view on the new elections uh, that took place there with the new Prime Minister. LaDonna Harvey will give us the latest from Texas uh, on that terrible shooting as well. Richard Taylor reports in from Croatia. He's going to be telling us why the Welsh Assembly uh, wants to actually get bigger. That's the last thing we need, isn't it? And Nick Freeman, of course, will be here as well. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is, of course, Talk TV. Let's get it on. Oh, yeah, I forgot. Rishi Sunak's going to be here as well because uh, he's going to be unveiling his plan to help uh, the little people. I was actually listening to an interview with him the other day where he was trying to sympathise with a woman who said that she needed two jobs in order to make ends meet uh, because the children were going hungry. And he said, well, I've got children. I know exactly what you mean. (laughs) Yeah, they're just in the swimming pool at the moment. We've had to heat it. It costs about 13 grand a year for that. Rod Little is here, associate editor of The Spectator. Columnist, of course, at The Sun. His column in there today. Rod, a very good morning to you. Good morning, mate. How are you doing? Yeah, very well indeed. I find myself once again at the gates of sarcasm, um, wondering whether to walk through them, because there's so much going on which is so ridiculous. I mean, Rishi Sunak today uh, will be unveiling his uh, windfall tax, which apparently is not a U-turn from the decision not to have one. Um, We're not quite sure how he's going to then pass all that money on and who's going to get it, and whether anybody's actually going to be any better off. Well, no, quite. My worry as well is is that government policy... Uh, even though you don't want to talk about it, Mike, and I, I understand why. Government policy is increasingly being driven, whether we like it or not, by party games. Yes. <laughs> I don't mind that, though. I like Boris Johnson when he's under pressure because he then makes decent uh, policy. Yeah, but you just have to view the, the, the idea that none of them really agree with the windfall tax, but we better do it in order to keep people um, from talking anymore about this party game right. stuff. And so we have a massive windfall tax... Uh, which is a U-turn, as we all know. Uh, and uh, you've really got Rishi on later. Well, we've got him on in the sense that he's on from Parliament because he's making his statement. Oh, right, right, right. No, at, of course. Yeah, 11, yeah. Uh, we've got him on at 11. I wish he would come on because I would put some questions to him, the like of which he's probably never heard. Yes, uh, the Chancellor who presents himself as uh, the most Thatcherite Chancellor we've had since 1981, but who's given away more money than any other Chancellor ah. in the history of Great Britain. I know. Who continues to do so. And this is the thing, I mean, I don't know about you, but I find it quite sort of um, unpleasant to just give people money. That's not the government's job, because inevitably it's your money and my money they're giving away. And I yeah. understand that some people are struggling, but surely then they should be putting pressure on the, on the, on the sellers of items, the sellers, the manufacturers of these products, to make them cheaper. Yes, I, I, don't, I don't mind them giving away your money, but it's my money. I <laughs> <laughs> Quite. You know, yeah, I, well, I mean, what, what we should be doing, Mike, <clears throat> is telling people 
and, and they, they get into such trouble for it. So, of course, they can't. It's telling people, well, look, sometimes inflation happens and prices go up. And what you do then is you try to spend less and spend more carefully. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that's what I remember my mum and dad doing in 1973, 74, uh, all the way through Jim Callahan's government as well. You know, you tighten, you tighten your belt a little bit. Uh, you perhaps don't buy that app you've been thinking of buying, you know? Right. Uh, and you, you, t- you, you, because in a way, the, the last 20 odd years have been the exception, really. We've always lived with inflation. We've always lived with rising prices. And uh, people have such disposable income these days that they're used to it being disposable uh, in a way that it never really was. You know, it, it's, we're, we're simply returning to the norm, I think. Well, I think so. But I think there's an entire generation of people who have never experienced high interest rates because they've, no, been, right. they've been fed this kind of diet of, of no interest at all. And they've all gone yeah. into massive debt and they've all got massive credit card bills, um, which now suddenly they can't afford to pay. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And I can remember, you know, uh, back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, um, a whole bunch of things happening together at the same time. Interest rates would suddenly go down, in mm. which case my mortgage was my brand new mortgage, which I just got on a 50 grand bed seat. Uh, my mortgage suddenly went down uh, and I had so much more disposable income. And then, you know, again, on another occasion, I was traveling to America and I budgeted for America. And three days before I went, the dollar crashed, yeah. the pound went up. And, and those things were regular occurrences at the time. You know, it, well, they were. Well, when I, li- when I lived in New York, um, many of the correspondents there had had their very, they were, they were very pleased with themselves because they'd had their pay, which was paid in sterling for British newspapers, set at 250 to the pound. So when it finally went down to like basically parity, where it was like 102 to the pound, they were absolutely living high on the hog, going, This is brilliant. You know, for every hundred thousand pounds we make, we make $250,000. You sure do. Yeah. Yeah. You know. yeah. No, and, no, no, that's right. And, and you know, if, if you if you're getting a mortgage, don't 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 think you know. Well, uh, I can afford this at one percent. Uh, think about what you can afford if it's five percent right. or ten percent. Yes, and that, that's what we've always had to do. You, you budget for a bad worst case scenario. Yes, but I, I don't think anyone is prepared for this because it hasn't been like this for such a long time. And you and I, well, are, you and I are old enough to remember the seventies where we really didn't have anything. I mean, I didn't really worry that much about the interest rates in the seventies because I didn't have any money and I no, didn't and I didn't have a mortgage because I was a teenager. And literally, um, I, I don't remember what we did for entertainment, but it certainly didn't involve phones or computers or you know anything expensive. No, 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 that's right. But, but of course, it's also, you know, a good thing for people who've got um, lots of savings if they're, if they're going to get a higher rate of interest huh. on them, you know, but, but we don't save anymore. Well, no, well, that, but again, and again, that's partly because if you did save, you get that sort of statement from the bank saying, you know, we're delighted to, to say that this month you've made three pence on your yes, that's right. on your that's savings right. account. Right. So we've added, we've duly added that. Just, I mean, I said I wasn't going to talk about it, but we obviously can't avoid it. Um, the question I was listening to you uh, on uh, in another place, as we like to refer to uh, some other places in this building, uh, yesterday, and you were talking about the, the the fact that Boris Johnson has no real ideology; he doesn't really have any great belief system or anything like that. But I wonder whether this is his kind of uh, ninth life that he's just lost, because all of the things that have come before have kind of prepared us for this point where, finally, there are a lot more people now who don't like him as much as they used to. If you know what I mean. I think it's his ninth life with the electorate. Yeah. Uh, I think his ninth life with the Conservative Party in Parliament is going to take a bit longer to come. Mm. Uh, but I, I think the damage has been done with the electorate. Uh, I mean, especially if you you talk to the people up here who are just, you know, in, in my neck of the woods, I'm, I'm in Kent and Durham. I have people just furious. Uh, and the, the, I think Boris forgets, I think he, I think he thought that that he had won in 2019 because he was extremely popular and everybody loved him, yeah. and that they had a belief in the Conservative Party. They didn't. Those those votes were lent uh, rather grudgingly and with people holding their noses up here mm. um, because they couldn't abide Jeremy Corbyn, yeah. you know, which seems to be a perfectly rational <laughs> outcome of the world. Uh, and... and you know, there is no Jeremy Corbyn anymore. And ineffectual, though Keir Starmer may be, at the moment, he seems to be a better bet than Boris Johnson in terms of trustworthiness and 
coherence. And that's that's the problem which the Conservative Party have. And it was always always a deal with, with the Tories. There's an awful lot of Conservative MPs who do not like Boris. Yeah. And the deal was also, well, yeah, he wins elections, but he ain't anymore. Right. You know, well, he may still do, because the thing about Keir Starmer and his, <clears throat> and his great integrity that he keeps telling us he's got, that could all well be blown out of the water. I mean, he already looks much more hold below the waterline than he was. I mean, yesterday, uh, when... Boris was hurling the, the the allegations about him and Durham and the police investigation and why is he not gone? I mean, he really didn't have any answer. He just sat there looking a bit like a stunned mullet, you know. And at well, the that, of... that that's a problem, isn't it, for for Starmer? Yeah. In that, uh, at one point, we we were prepared to uh, accept that he seemed to be a man of integrity, but you can't have it both ways. You cannot say if the Prime Minister is investigated by the police, he must resign, and then when you are investigated by the police, not resign. <laughs> exactly. You can't do it. Can't uh, do it. And as somebody pointed out to me yesterday, you know, with this kind of media scrum, this incredible kind of attack dog mentality that the media seems to now have about Boris Johnson. They just want to get him out at any cost. You know, I was listening to some of the questioning going on this morning on various different outlets and, and, and government ministers being absolutely shredded by something which is effectively finished, right? But what they're not doing yeah. is asking about the two people who are currently under police investigation for parties, and that is Angela Rayner and Sir Keir Starmer. Yes. Yeah, no, no, the, 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 the BBC it never seemed terribly keen on the Keir Starmer story. I, I'm, I'm not sure why, why that could be. It certainly couldn't be anything like uh, partisan broadcasting or anything like that. Certainly not, because uh, as we well know, the BBC, Tim, Tim Davey keeps telling us the BBC's not biased, so he must be no, right. No, no. Holy, holy neutral, holy neutral. Uh, it, uh, I mean, I, I, does Tim really say that? Uh, I mean, all you've got to do is listen to the news of a morning and then check the front pages of the newspapers. Yes. And you will find that every morning, the BBC leads on the same story that the Guardian's leading on. Every morning. Yeah. <laughs> And, and also, I listened to a bit of Nick Robinson this morning quizzing um, Barclay, I think it was, uh, the government minister. And it was, it, was, it was just badgering. It was just ridiculous. You know, and, you weren't, and he wasn't yeah. listening to the answers. He was, he was simply out there trying to, you know, improve upon the last time he monstered a, a particular government minister, you know? Yeah, I think people are sick of that as well. They are. Uh, That's why they keep coming to us in droves, Rod. Listen, I know you yeah. haven't got a lot of time this morning. We're going to get on to a couple of other things. Stay with us for a moment. We're just going to stop and uh, get some uh, money in for the old coffers because we can't work for nothing. Uh, Rod Little is here with us. I'm Mike Graham. This is Talk TV. On the app, on your mobile, Talk Radio and Talk TV. With pension. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. It is, of course, a beautiful day out. It's a bit windy, mind you, for a sort of a early summer day. Uh, Rod Little is here with us. I was reading your uh, column this morning in The Sun, Rod. Uh, Ignore the hoo-ha. Monkeypox virus isn't the new COVID. I, was del- I loved the the, uh, the intro. You know, what, what's it all about? I mean, it really does feel like that, doesn't it, monkeypox? It's like, why are they telling us about this? Because I seem to remember that over time, we've had all sorts of weird outbreaks of things and nobody's gone into panic mode and talked about saving the NHS, but they're doing it again. No, that's, that's exactly right, mate. And that's that's the whole point I was trying to make this morning, that, that we seem to be ramped up by hysteria, partly in the media, partly in uh, uh, in the NHS and indeed uh, uh, probably in government circles as well, <clears throat> as if we're heading towards another lockdown for an illness which, which, which it is very, very difficult to catch, frankly. Yes. Um, uh, and and, and uh, unless you have intimate relations with a baboon uh, or, or indeed someone who's already got the thing. Right. Um, various kind of scary headlines. I, I saw one which said uh, NHS tells us not to eat meat. Avoid eating meat uh, in, in order to prevent the, the, the transmission of monkeypox. And so you think, hang on, what the hell's going on here? And then you read below the line and it says the meats that you should avoid are squirrel, monkey, and uh, there was one other, uh, a rat. rat. <laughs> you know, there, goes, you there goes the Sunday roast then. There goes the Sunday roast. I mean, and it's. <laughs> And then all the things, you know, is it, is it transmissible? Well, it, it is transmissible, but it, it, it takes quite a bit to transmit. Yeah. Is it lethal? Well, it's pretty bad in Africa where they don't have a proper health service. Uh, so nor do we, then I, I might add. I was going to say, um, I mean, I'd be careful about boasting about that. Yeah, uh, indeed. <laughs> but, you know, it's got, it's got a very, very low death rate. Very few people have got it. It's confined to, uh, at the moment, a certain group of people, which... 
uh, we were told at first it was a gay community, then they quickly stopped saying that because they thought it might be prejudicial, yes. uh, but it's clearly people who've come from Africa. You know, it, it it doesn't amount to a hill of beans, mate. Well, I mean, I actually saw I saw one of those maps of Europe, you know, where they were doing the spread of monkeypox in in one of the papers at the weekend. And they were actually counting in single digits in places like, you know, Holland, one case, Germany, two. I mean, it was more like a football report than it was an actual pandemic warning. But that's a problem. That's a problem, Mike. They've they've done the same thing here. So if it goes from one case in the Netherlands to eight, they will say that it's spreading with a rapidity eight times yes. in one day. You know, it's it's a bit like when I tell people that the Social Democratic Party is the fastest growing political party in Europe. Because yes. we had 1,003 people three years ago, and now we've got 4,000 or whatever. Yes. Um, so, but it's yeah. still it's true, but it's not, nonetheless, it's slightly taken slightly out of context. Exactly. More, exactly. more interestingly, and I know you've got to run in a second, um, I read your Spectator column as well about the sort of... Um, lack of attention to detail, yeah. uh, which I think is an actual thing. I think loads of people now, you get this feeling when you're talking to people on the phone, they're actually playing some kind of online game while they're talking to you because they're not really listening. No, that's exactly right. Uh, and uh, and there's, there's, I was reading a book by Yoan Harry, the, the, the quite left-wing writer about it, who does a really, really good job, very, very good book. He hasn't, uh, uh, he hasn't plagiarised this one then. <laughs> that's a very long time ago. <laughs> not only fair, Mr. Graham. Sorry, well, sorry. Uh, I mean, uh, he's, uh, he's a good writer, Yoan. Uh, uh, and uh, it is a thing, you know, and I notice it with, with, with my 16-year-old daughter who is perpetually on her phone. Yeah. But then I notice it with myself as well. I mean, I'm not quite as much a slave to the phone as many people, even of my age, are. Uh, but what, what it means is, is that, Everything is kind of done on the level of a tweet mm. uh, or, or a comment on WhatsApp or a comment yes. on TikTok. Uh, and there is no depth to it. And, there's, and, and our attention span, our ability to, to, to think about stuff and to look at seriousness has reduced massively. Our attention span is now very, very short indeed. Uh, and, and we don't read books anymore. Mm. They're these big things you right. know, that, that, that can't be encapsulated in a you know, uh, 15-second tweet by Owen Jones, you know. uh, (laughs) Well, this is the thing. I mean, I read books only when I'm on holiday, right? But I don't take holidays anymore either because it's too complicated. So I'm I'm not sure I'm ever going to read another one. Well, no, uh, that's it. You see, I do still read books, but I'm a dinosaur. Um, And... And you know, my again, you know, talking about my daughter, she says she's a really, really bright kid, but she doesn't read books. No. You know? And, and I, I say to her, read this. You know, you'll 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 enjoy it. There is nothing quite like the satisfaction of getting inside a book. Yeah, uh, it's far more gratifying in the end, and gives you far more mm. than talking idiocies on WhatsApp to some twat, if I can put it like that. <laughs> Uh, probably uh, not, but, uh, but thank you anyway. Apologies, yeah. That's okay. Yeah. Don't worry. Listen, I know you've got to run. Uh, great to see you. Great to talk to you, Rod Little, reporting in uh, from the northeast of uh, our fine country here in England. Um, I know that if you're listening in Scotland, uh, it's not the northeast of Scotland, so that's why I made that delineation, despite the fact that actually the great British nation is the, the one that we generally talk about. Now, um, we've got much to do, uh, plenty of time to do it in. We'll take some calls as well, 0344-499-1000. But let us, for a moment, uh, just... Consider what is going on here, because we're going to be hearing, we think, from John Barron coming up very shortly, who's one of the MPs who's decided that he no longer has any confidence in Boris Johnson, right? Uh, He's apparently going to be asking an urgent question. We're going to be listening to all of that. David Simmons... Uh, is a third Tory who's now asked for Boris Johnson to step down. Uh, Previously, there was an MP yesterday who called for him. So we're up to three, which is not really very many. I suspect it's not going to be enough uh, to have any impact whatsoever because Boris Johnson, as I said, he may have used up his ninth life, as in the cats that have nine lives, but he's still there and he's not going anywhere. And the actual ins and outs of what happened are quite clearly not worth examining or re-examining, and we're not going to do it here. Very clearly, uh, the Sun leader this morning says it all. These were not really parties. These were events where people were standing around, drinking out of plastic cups, and in some cases, in where Boris was, eating some rather limp-looking sandwiches. You know, you might be upset about some of the other parties that he wasn't at, but let's have a listen uh, to Boris Johnson yesterday afternoon at his press conference in Downing Street. When some of these officials and advisers were leaving their jobs, 
I briefly attended gatherings to thank them for everything they had done, because I believe that recognising achievement and preserving morale are essential duties of leadership. The police did not find my attendance at these occasions to be a breach of the rules, uh, but they found otherwise in respect of some of those gatherings after I had left or, or when I was not in the building. The people who hate Boris Johnson are absolutely livid. The people who support Boris Johnson might support him slightly less, but they still support him. And I think that is actually the point, isn't it? Surely more important now uh, is what Rishi Sunak is about to do and whether Rishi Sunak is actually going to give people some financial support during this difficult time, during this crazy kind of spiral of inflation. The chickens are coming home to roost, says Gareth. Free money doled out for doing nothing is now being taken back and we all are having to work harder. It's basic economics. Angela says, we bought our first house when mortgage rates were just 15%, but salaries were going up and people could actually save. Also, you have to remember back in the 70s, it might have been interest rates were rampant and interest rates were very, very high indeed, but house prices weren't quite as high. There wasn't the same kind of house inflation that there is now. And Pete, obviously a man after my own heart, get rid of VAT and the green levy on energy bills. That's where I'd start. I think this is the point. You've got to make the point of sale cheaper, right? Because collecting money from the oil giants and putting it somewhere in the treasury where you're supposedly then going to give it out to various different people in various different ways, that's not going to work. What people want is to be able to go to the petrol station and actually get some petrol that they can put in their car that costs the same as it did a year ago. So instead of paying 85, 95, 105 pounds to fill their tank, they're only going back to paying 50 again. That's what they need to do. The idea of just taking money off these profiteers is wrong, entirely wrong. This is Talk TV. I'm Mike Graham. We'll be talking about e-scooters coming next. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV, here with you all the way through until one o'clock. We've got Richard Taylor joining us later on. Dr David Bull uh, is going to be here as well. He'll give us the lowdown on just why the NHS is not working and he'll have a personal story uh, of absolute horror to tell you about it as well because so many people now are going private in this world, in this country, in order to get medical uh, attention because they simply can't get medical attention from the NHS. It seems to have ground to a complete halt. The ambulances aren't moving. The GP surgeries are still closed. Lots of people can't get to see a doctor. You can't get into a hospital. You know, you can't be moved out of a hospital because the, so the social care problem is still in existence and it's still ridiculously difficult. So, you know, to be honest, it really is a shambles. It needs fixing. And that's one of the things I would say Boris Johnson and the Conservative government of this country need to be getting on with. Forget about how many sandwiches they had or how many bottles of wine they had or whether somebody was sick. Let's get the NHS fixed, shall we? Let's talk as well uh, to Nick Freeman, lawyer and road safety campaigner, because guess what? It turns out that e-scooter injuries have gone up massively. Now, Nick and I have both been campaigning separately and sometimes together uh, for some kind of set of rules around these electronic vehicles, but we still don't have any. Nick, a very good morning to you. Good morning, Mike. So um, this, I suppose, both of us could have predicted. There's finally some statistics to back up what we've been warning about. Um, tell us what, uh, uh, what's going on. Well, as, as you rightly say, we're not at all surprised. We did predict. Uh, the figures are shocking. Um, basically, a fourfold increase over the last um, 12 months in terms of accidents. I mean, nine people killed, over 1,000 people injured, 305 seriously injured. Uh, and you, you've got it. That, that, that really is the tip of the iceberg because I'm quite confident that most of the injuries are not actually being reported to the police because what's the point? Unless you detain someone at the roadside, they're never going to be caught. So um, it, it's problems that we've highlighted before and the government needs to get a grip of this because there are something like 750,000 illegal scooters, private scooters on our roads at the moment and they're about to be unleashed uh, with the support of law by the government um, because they can't really prevent it, so they might as well go with it and, mm. and try and try and use the law to enforce it. So as you and I have discussed previously, what, what needs to happen first and foremost is that there must be some form of identification for an e-scooter rider. So yeah. at least there is a semblance of responsibility for what they do. Uh, because one of the big problems, of course, is pedestrians um, riding on the pavements. How are we going to stop that? Yeah. Um, we're only going to stop that if, if we know who's doing it and mm. if we can punish the culprits. 
So with, without that, that, that we're, we're not going to move forward. And I think the government are giving that serious consideration now. Yeah. Another problem, of course, you know, the government have said, well, we express our deepest sympathies for all those concerned. And, you know, we're really concerned with increasing safety. And at the same time, this government has, by a statutory instrument, removed the mandatory safeguard of wearing a helmet. Mm. I just don't understand where they're coming from. Surely the, the right approach is these e-scooters must have helmets. They're categorised, um, or they were before the statutory instrument, as mopeds. They must have helmets, and we need to go back to that situation. It, it can't be a guideline. There has to be a mandatory requirement. Yes. Uh, I think the, the law is in place. We've said many times before, the law is in place. There does need to be new specific legislation. For example, you know, with identification, if we said, if you, if you e-scooter on a pavement, there will be six penalty points on your license, coupled with a significant fine. Mm. I think that would act as a deterrent because the real problem is, well, who's going to police all this? And that, that's the same with our roads. You know, are we going to start having cameras on our pavements? That may be a possibility because uh, when we start talking about the real figures that are involved, it's a huge problem and we're never going to catch the culprits without some form of computer system. Yeah. Um, because the police aren't there, are they? They've got other, other fish to fry apart from Partygate. Well, that's what they tell us. But they also tell us that they're going to up uh, the, the number of uh, speeding fines that they hand out. They're also saying that if you are seen by a camera uh, using your phone while in the car, uh, then there will be three points immediately added to your licence and you will be fined. Well, that's fine. Uh, but why can't they use those cameras for catching these people? Well, because they don't know who's on them. There's yeah, no I know. But what I'm saying is, is if there was a system that was driving that and then you could recognise them and you could Absolutely. have them Absolutely. registered, then we'd be in better shape. And that, that, that's what we've said. There needs to be identification. First and foremost, that's the starting point. Uh, and then the law that is in existence will kick in. And it will help because, you know, as I've said, you take this, take number plates off cars. How are most people going to drive? They're going to drive with gay-free cat abandoned. Mm. It's like the Wild West out there with these scooters because they, they can e-scoot with impunity. They know they're never going to be held to account unless somebody physically detains mm. them at the roadside. And, of course, what these statistics don't tell us is how, much, how many of these um, incidents, e-scooters, are being used in the commission of crime. Well, thousands and thousands. And we, no one's discussing that at the moment. And, of course, that's a problem. The Met, what, what are they saying about it? What are they doing about it? You know, we, we did call for, and there was a response for, you know, the destruction, the confiscation of these e-scooters, the privately ones that needs to happen we need to have that, that on a regular mm. basis and then people will think actually this is a lot of money to throw away prime might not crime might not pay under these specific circumstances no exactly right because i mean i was driving around quite a lot yesterday around south london and this morning coming into work as well i mean it's literally like a cross between mad max and back to the future out there on the roads i saw yeah. a guy this morning on one of those electric skateboards which is sort of a, a plank of wood with a, with a round ball underneath and some lights yeah. flashing and he's going mm. along about 30 miles an hour not wearing any protection at all yeah i saw a guy on a moped right this one will get you First time I've ever seen this. Guy on a moped, wearing a helmet, had a backpack on, but inside the backpack was a dog. And the dog was literally sort of waving its head around uh, out uh, behind him, you know, which can't be safe for the dog apart from anything else. And then meanwhile, you've got these guys on unicycles. You know, you've got about 55 different forms of electric vehicles, all of which unlicensed. Nobody knows who they are. Nobody knows what they're doing. Correct. I think look, the priority of this government is prioritising the green agenda. Um, it needs to do so with balance. There needs to be a collaborative approach. It need, they need to be sincere when they say they want to make our roads safe. It cannot be at all costs. We can't just unfold all, all, all these environmentally, so-called environmentally friendly means of transport without having the right legislation in place. And at the moment, they're not leading by example. They're not doing so. Uh, and, and they need to... They need to get a grip. Otherwise, they've got blood on their hands, haven't they? They really have. And, I mean, could it be something that starts um, in one city of this country? Could it be a local law that was brought in? Um, or would it be something that would have to be national? It needs to be national. It needs to be DVLA-based. We need a proper system, as we have for drivers. Exactly the same system. The law, the Road Traffic Act, governs e-scooters. But it's redundant because we don't know who's driving. So let's just have exactly the same system coupled with specific extra extra provisions to deal with pavements because most cars don't drive on pavements that that's a huge problem for all sorts of people um so the, you know we need to make the existing law count and there's only one way of doing that i don't know why you and i need to keep repeating this I know. because it's so obvious and um, you know this government keep telling us they're concerned about making it safer they're not 
If they are, do it. Simple. Yeah, absolutely right. Nick, great to talk to you. Thank you very much indeed. Nick Freeman, lawyer and road safety campaigner. Apollo uh, sends me this tweet. Around here in Manchester, they're suddenly really popular. They're flying down pavements, going through red lights on the wrong side of the road, and they're nearly always young lads on them. Well, this is the thing. The problem for anyone who is out there on the streets of this country knows uh, that there are so many different types of vehicles, so many different electric vehicles, whether they be uh, unicycles, electric bikes, whether they be e-scooters. You know, people are whizzing around you a constant at a rate of knots you never know which way they're coming from you know i've had several incidents i would say in the last week alone where somebody has either practically run into my car uh, or i've practically almost run them over because they were cutting across the front of the car when they shouldn't have been and more and more people are going to get injured that's pedestrians that's cyclists that's people riding on these things and probably even people driving cars because if you have to swerve to avoid one of these maniacs you could end up hurting yourself Something's got to be done. They've got to change the system. Surely to heavens. 0344 499 1000. This is Talk TV. Edgy talk. Plain talk. Unrivaled talk. Mike Graham. The only radio show you can count on for a proper serving of good old-fashioned common sense. In search of the perfect debate. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. See it. Hear it. Think it. Talk radio and talk TV. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. We are, of course, here for you, uh, as indeed we are every single day of the week. Coming up at one o'clock, Ian Collins will be here, Jeremy Carl from four, of course. And then later on tonight, uh, it's Tom Newton Dunn with the news desk. It's Piers Morgan. Then it's a talk with me, amongst a few other people. Me and Jeremy Carl, uh, Sharon Osborne, and a host, a cast of, not thousands exactly, but a cast of five or six anyway, uh, which should be very good indeed. That's 9pm tonight. Uh, we're coming up to uh, the second hour of the show. Richard Taylor is joining us from a secret location uh, somewhere in darkest Europe. We've sent him off to the European Union to see what's going on, to see what's happening over there, to see what they're saying about monkeypox, about the Welsh Sened about whether or not it should be, in fact, uh, expanding, which we don't think it should be. We've got a great tweet here uh, from the Labour MP for Exeter, uh, who's decided that he can't stand to be in the same room as Boris Johnson. We're tracking as well uh, the various Tory MPs. So far, there are three uh, who say that they think that Boris Johnson should resign. I'm afraid it's not enough. (laughs) He'll be sitting in Downing Street going, well, that's all right then. Got another sort of 250 to go then. He's not going anywhere, so just move on. And my message to all of you journalists out there who call yourself journalists, who think that you are going to dislodge a suitably elected MP uh, and Prime Minister just because you don't like the cut of his jib, that's not your job either. You know, I sit here as a polemicist. Uh, I don't pretend to be a working journalist or a working reporter. I do a radio show. I do a television show. I have opinions uh, and I am asked to provide those opinions to you. Uh, You can either agree with me or not. The bottom line for me uh, is that it is no business of BBC reporters or Sky reporters to hurl insults, hurl terrible, you know, shouty questions at people. Beth Rigby yesterday demanding to know whether Boris Johnson at any point ever considered resigning. Well, if I'd been him, I would have said, well, did you ever consider resigning after you got caught out uh, and got suspended for three months? Because you know what? Some people think you should have done. But Boris is too nice to do that, isn't he? 0344 499 1000 is the number. I don't know if we can see the Ben Bradshaw tweet, but we can, I think, show it to you very shortly. He says basically this. Apologies to my constituents who may have wished me to be in the chamber today, but I couldn't be in the same physical space as that man and the craven Tory MPs keeping him there. I have full confidence in the decency of the British public to correct that at the next election. You all right, Ben? Do you want some um, handkerchiefs for your salty tears? I can't be in the same room as him. I just can't. Well, there's a small matter of doing your job, mate. Ben Bradshaw, you are a disgrace. It's all very well apologising to your constituents for not actually going to work. Get to work. You're on public money. I'm paying your salary and you'll be claiming your expenses, no doubt. I hope you're having a nice lunch while you're not working. Unbelievable. Who do you think he is? Let's talk to Richard Taylor, political commentator, somewhere in the far depths of Europe. Richard, a very good afternoon to you, wherever you are. Uh, good afternoon, Mike. I've missed you. I've missed our Thursday regular slot. It's good to be <laughs> back. I am actually in an undisclosed location out here in Europe. <laughs> right. And I have to say, it's completely different to what we're experiencing back home in the UK. Is it? We, there's, no, there's no talk of monkeypox, although Wales now has one case. 
My God, Drakeford's going to shut the whole bloody. I was going to say it's not it's not Drakeford, is it? (laughs) (laughs) No, he's swinging mad anyway. Um, He's looking a bit green around the gills. Yeah, 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 so different out here, Mike. People aren't hung up on a lot of the things we are over there. I've been out here for a couple of weeks. I'm still due to be here for a little little bit while longer. And, you know, you mentioned earlier there, you know, politicians, uh, you know, turning on Boris, you know, not turning up to Parliament. They paid £81,000 a year. They paid their expenses, their gas and electric, which most of us are facing a massive cost of living crisis on. And he doesn't turn up for work. What's the matter with the bloke? He's got a job. You know, he's paid to do the job. He should turn up. So Europe is beautiful. The weather is lovely. I've got a lovely tan bike and I'm really enjoying the rest as well. Excellent. Well, it's always good to get a bit of R&R. And I mean, I was uh, not able to get away for half term this year because we're just too busy. There's too much going on. And also, there's still quite a bit of sort of COVID, post-COVID madness. How are you finding uh, that as far as travelling is concerned? Well, do you know what, Mike? I was quite surprised and shocked for your listeners and viewers to, to, to know this is important. It's not as, as, as serious as people think it is. You know, we see the press and the media and we think, oh, we can't travel, can't go on holiday. There are lots of places you can go where COVID regulations are not imposed. And in fact, in some of the countries I've been traveling across Europe, even though they are still in place, people don't follow them. They right. don't care. They're past it. They're over it. And the idea of some new virus, this pandemic, which no doubt the WHO and WEF are going to be pushing on this new treaty of pandemics, how to deal with them. You know, the monkeypox is the end thing. Um, people here don't care. They're getting on with life. And I think that's what's important. And I think people need to get out of the UK a lot more often, Mike, and experience different parts of Europe. Yes. No, listen, I'm always, I'm always a great advocate for travel. Um, the difficulty for a lot of people, though, of course, is that even if they did get vaccinated, some of them, if there are countries where they want you to be vaccinated, um, they're now saying your vaccine's out of date. Yeah, they are. And, but a lot of countries are dropping their regulations, Mike. Certainly the countries I've been to, vaccination is not a legal requirement. Right. You don't need to do that. You don't even have to provide a PCR test 72 hours before travelling. There are no regulations. So, you know, Bulgaria, Croatia, Thessaloniki, and Greece, they still have some kind of, you know, regulations on mask wearing. But lots of people don't. They don't. They don't really ask you to do it. It's, no. it's quite. They've, they've dropped the regulations, and you know, I, it's been a, a real eye opener for me to see people living freely away from all these restrictions. And what's interesting as well, Mike, in Bulgaria, in restaurants, they still smoke. Now, this is not. I'm not saying people should smoke because it's bad for your health, right? right. But they they have this kind of post-communist kind want, of though. idea. Yeah, yeah, but indoors in a restaurant. And, you know, the smoking area in restaurants is fuller than the non-smoking areas. I was sat at my own in one restaurant. I was like, this is a different world compared to what we're used to in the UK. And it's just so different. People are so much liberated in different parts I've traveled, Mike. And it's been been wonderful to refresh myself and look at politics from outside. And what I'm seeing happening back home is an absolute mess. Our politics is in a complete mess. Well, you know what? The great thing about Europe is there's no champagne socialist knocking about. The little Putney Brigade don't (laughs) exist because they're all too busy uh, if they are making good money they're happy making good money they're not sort of feeling guilty about it and trying to give you know things away to food banks every five minutes and give you know money to charity all the time and feeling bad because they're well off and they've got a nice big house you know with a big garden and they're working from home i mean i bet you most of the people in europe are not working from home well yeah they, they, they don't have the same kind of welfare system that we have and i think you know the generosity of the state and you know, how people want the state to look after them you know babysit them pay for everything we, we've got that mentality in yeah. the uk but outside of the uk different parts of Europe, they don't have that you don't work you don't eat you know and of course there is some help available for those who can't work disabilities such forth but it's it's a culture here where if you don't work you don't get paid. And if mm. you don't get paid, you don't eat food. And I think it's very different in the UK where the government gives hand, handouts, yes. uh, especially in Wales, we've seen under the Mark Drakeford socialist government, you know, vote for us, keep us in power, and you don't have to go to work and we'll keep paying you state benefits. And that, unfortunately, is not the way for a country to move yeah. forward. The I other thing it. about European culture is that the families are much more together because I don't know whether that's because the policies that they have keep the families better and closer together. But, you know, your family is responsible for you in Europe, whereas in this country... Uh, you basically, if you get abandoned by your family because they can't be bothered looking after you or they can't be bothered helping you, you have to go running off to the government to get freebies. Yeah. I, I also think, you know, to add to that, Mike, you know, I, this is my own experience. The poorer people are, the kinder they seem to be. Mm. It's a strange thing. You know, I've met a lot of people who, who we would consider 
you know, not just working class, but, but poor because of their wages are very low and everything as compared to the UK and the equivalent. But yet they're the happiest, the most friendliest, the nicest people. And I think that's a credit to, to them really in countries across Europe where you find that and we could learn something from mm. them because in the UK, you know, we're fixated on this kind of culture of, you know, just get things for free. You don't have to work. There's a sense here. You work, you've worked hard you've earned your coin and then you can enjoy your life. And I think that's important. And we need to learn from countries across Europe. And now, I sound like a, like a, like a Remainer now, don't I? Let's get back into the European <laughs> I'm not at all, no. No, no, you don't. I mean, the thing that. is, look, the point, of, the point about <laughs> yeah. the Brexit was never about European people. It was about the European exactly. Union and an organisation in Brussels, uh, which is so corrupt and awful and ghastly that even most people in Europe don't support it. But they tend to be a bit less kind of radical about getting rid of it than we were and i'm very glad that we did meanwhile though let's talk about the senate uh, as uh, yeah. uh, we know that, uh, that drakeford uh, he loves a lockdown uh wants to now expand it how what, what's, what does he want does he want more public money or something yeah, well first of all uh, i mentioned a few weeks ago on the show mike that there is a cooperation agreement which they've called it it's actually a coalition between welsh labor who won the majority of seats for the, the senate to be in power as the government with plaid cymru which is a welsh nationalistic group uh, led by Adam Price. Now, they've come up with this idea. They've, they've said to the public that this was in their manifesto when they were knocking doors to get elected. I can tell you this was not something that was on Welsh television screens. They were not telling people that they want to expand the Senate, mm. the, the Welsh government, that is, from 60 members to 96 members. Now, that's going to have a huge impact so more than 50 percent. taxpayers. Absolutely. And it's over-representation when you look at Westminster and other places as well, where there are parliaments currently existing in devolved administrations. And the whole idea of this, not just the cost element, but what this does, Mike, and this is very worrying, it cements their position inevitably in future elections. Mm. So smaller parties, new parties that want to you know, challenge to win seats in constituencies will no longer be in a position where they have a real fighting chance. It's a huge mountain to climb because they're fixing not just the number of seats in the Senate, but also they want to reform the voting system, first past the post, proportional representation. And it means that new parties and smaller parties will not get a look in, which means that they keep themselves in power inevitably in Wales for well, the foreseeable future. The we don't know. And, uh, yeah. And I think there was an article in the Express by David Maddox today, you know, talking about this. And I, I know Simon Hart, the Secretary of State of Wales, uh, for Wales, State of Wales, yeah, the Secretary of State for Wales, mentioned that you know there needs to be a referendum for this it needs to go back to the people of wales to decide because mm. how can they make a constitutional change in expanding the government without asking the people of wales and i put together a petition mike which will be going live in the next few days calling for the welsh government for a referendum on whether or not to expand the Senate from 60 to 96 right. members. Because apart from anything else, there must be a financial implication. They may, they'll need an awful lot more money if they're expanding the number of people there. Because, you know, we know this. If you get one political representative, they've usually got to hire about three or four yeah. more people, uh, which will up the, up the budget immensely. Oh, absolutely massive. I mean, there are some estimated costs being thrown about. And what's interesting about this, Mike, before this was proposed, they held a consultation or they've set up a consultation committee. Now, on that committee were three members, three of them, are Welsh independence supporters. Right. So there was no sense of, you know, e you know, uh, parity at all. It was like these people want Welsh independence. The way to do that is more powers. Now, the reason why they want to expand the Senate is because they say they're overworked. So these are politicians being paid lovely sums of money saying they're overworked yet as of this week they've asked for more powers to be devolved from westminster such as justice which means more work so if they're overworked why are they asking for more responsibility <laughs> it doesn't make any sense whatsoever well, because there might be a few quid in it i think it's a straight answer <laughs> to that richard listen good to see you good to talk to you enjoy the rest of your trip around the european Excuse union me, uh, you which bits of it you like which bits of it. we'll have to talk some more when you get back uh, very good to see you richard taylor there political commentator with us uh, from the heart of europe uh, where he says people aren't bothered about monkeypox amazing isn't it this is talk tv on the app, on your smart speaker, talk radio and talk TV.
Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk TV. Now, you know one of the things that we do on the show an awful lot is to talk about the NHS. We get your experiences. Many of you have been in touch with us to tell us about the difficulties many of you have had, uh, either in seeing a doctor, in being referred to a specialist, in getting an ambulance, and even getting out of an ambulance once you got to a hospital, even getting out of the hospital uh, if you happen to be an elderly person uh, who can't be sent back to social care. We're going to speak now to Dr David Bull, who is, of course, our very own Talk TV presenter the weekends uh, with Claudia Liza. David, a very good morning to you. Very good morning to you, Mike. Thank you very much. And congrats on the new show. It's going very well. I think it's, uh, it's a great little combination. I don't know whether that was a happy happenstance or whether it was deliberate. Oh, I think it was uh, clever machinations of the leaders <laughs> at the top, don't you? Absolutely, of course. Um, now, we've had some very serious um, conversations on this show about the, the failings of the NHS. You've got your own story. So why don't you just tell us your story yeah. and then we'll go from there? I mean, it's it's a terribly sad story. And I say this as someone who is a medical doctor, and it, it involves my cousin, actually, who was 27 years old, very fit, very well, yeah. and presented to the NHS with some, some very severe symptoms of some right upper quadrant pain in his abdomen, and also some tenderness there, and uh, essentially went to see uh, various specialists. Mm. And at that point, they diagnosed him with something called a hydatid cyst, Now, his father, my uncle, is also a doctor, and the two of us both didn't really understand that diagnosis because it's a very strange diagnosis to be given in this country because it's normally caused by a tapeworm, and it's not something that you would see in this country. But nevertheless, they they carried on and they said, right, he has a hydatid cyst and he needs surgery. So he went to a centre of excellence, and at 27 years old, they did a major excision of what they thought was a hydatid cyst, and they had wide excision margins. That means they cut a lot of it out because they believed that that was the right thing to do. But crucially, there was never any biopsy. There was never any histology done on that hydatid cyst, and they closed him, or so-called hydatid cyst. They then closed him up. But what they hadn't done, and they'd resected a huge amount of his liver, and what they hadn't done is actually tether the remaining part of that liver back. And what happened next was that actually what was left of his liver then twisted on itself and infarcted. That means it didn't get the blood supply it needed. And Charles went into renal failure and he went into liver failure. He was then, uh, many weeks later, they really didn't know what to do with him. He didn't regain consciousness. He was then transferred to another centre of excellence where they were so horrified by what had happened that actually they gave him a liver transplant. It didn't work. He became very swollen, very edematous. And very sadly, my cousin Charles, at the age of 27, uh, died 13 weeks later. And this is where I get very angry about the whole thing. There were, it was a catalogue of disaster. That diagnosis was wrong. They hadn't done the biopsy. They hadn't done the histology. It was not a hydatid cyst. They hadn't secured the liver properly. And what was worse, obviously, we went to a coroner's inquest. And, and it was a very, very difficult time for the family, as you, sure. as you can imagine. But here is here's the, the nub of the, the problem. There is still a massive culture of cover-up in the NHS. And what I witnessed firsthand in that coroner's court was that notes had gone missing. The doctors changed their notes subsequently. Thirdly, doctors lied on oath. And we found out lots of details much later on, uh, such as that actually during the operation, they'd punctured his main uh, vein, the vena cava, which obviously was disastrous for him. And, and the crux of the whole thing was he never had a hydatid cyst. It was the wrong diagnosis. It was the wrong operation. They should never have done it. And he would still be alive today. And what's more, actually, the coroner then gave um, the verdict of death by misadventure. But we are very clear, clear as a family, this was death by medical negligence. Yes. And do you have anywhere to go with that? Because we saw when you talk about the culture of cover up just, I think, earlier this week, uh, a report into the Northeast Ambulance Service in which it was said that many reports by paramedics were altered, that many facts were changed, that when people had died, um, there were cover ups involved. And it's a shocking um, uh, I mean, it's bad enough to get it wrong. But to then try and pretend that you didn't get it wrong is criminal, isn't it? 
Well, I think it is absolutely. And also you see my, my uncle is, is a very academic doctor. Even people he knew didn't really want to associate with us because we were obviously rocking the boat. And there is sort of this unspoken thing about the NHS mm. is you, you don't, don't call it out. But you know, the point about this is actually the NHS can provide fantastic care. It's probably the most loved healthcare system in the world. Is it the best managed? Absolutely not. Does it provide world leading care? Sometimes, mm. but what we have to do, have to do urgently is to reform it because we we know at the moment that 48% of the staffing budget goes to non-clinicians. Yeah. We've got to stop this ridiculous culture of cover-up because then and only then will clinicians learn from their mistakes and other people won't die. Well, we also learned this week, David, that uh, £600 million a week goes from the NHS to China to buy various pieces of PPE, various different bits of equipment, which we could perfectly well buy from elsewhere or maybe even manufacture ourselves. And so when people say, where's all the money going? Well, it's not going to the right place, is it? Well, absolutely right. And you see, one of the things that I'm concentrating on, and I'm looking at a report for for Reform Party about how we reform the NHS. Mm. But when you look at actually the way that it's fragmented, you've now got individual trusts all procuring different things at different prices. So I've looked at, say, syringes, which are coming in at, at a few pennies for some trusts, going up to, to many pennies, 50 odd P and more. So in fact, when we're actually not spending our money wisely. And when people then say, as you know, many people will say, well, we don't give the the NHS enough money. That simply isn't true. We spent 176 billion on it last year and another 26 billion. We are actually the third highest funded um, health service in the world. Mm. And, the, and the, so the reality is the money is going in, but it is not hitting the floor. And many of my friends who, as, as you would expect, are doctors, are very frustrated about all of these targets. Every time you bring a target in, you need a manager to check whether you've actually hit that target. We need to abolish targets and look at outcomes. There are six to seven million people waiting for elective procedures. That is unacceptable. Mm. This is public money and it has to improve. And in your view, David, as as somebody who's worked within the the, the NHS, is it too big? I mean, can it be broken up in some way, shape or form? Not necessarily privatised, but just, you know, made smaller somehow. Well, I think it's a really, really good point. Of course, as you know, it's the third largest employer in the world, I think, behind the Indian Railway and the Chinese National Army. Um, So it is absolutely vast. And I think for me, what we actually have to do is to work out what do you want the NHS to provide? Because at its inception in 1948, it was never there to do what it now does. Mm. And of course, you cannot provide all things to all men and people need to understand that. And I think the other thing is that actually, I think most people, as long as, as the service remains free, at the point of need, I don't think anyone minds who delivers that care. So I'm very keen that the money follows the patient, that you decide where you get treated. And going back to my cousin's story, that you are able to get a second or a third opinion. Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And is there any um, respite for your um, cousin's family and your own family with regard to to, to a legal kind of settlement? No, absolutely none. We couldn't get anywhere. And this is many years later. And of course, you see, for my uncle, it destroyed him. It meant he could never work in medicine again. He could never look at those other professors uh, in the same way. And and one of the professors actually, who was due to give evidence, said, well, I would speak out because what we did was wrong, but I want a chair at a leading university. Got to stop. Yeah. Shocking. Absolutely awful. Well, listen, David, see you on Saturday morning, uh, bright and early. Thank you very much indeed for talking to us. Dr. David Bull, back on Saturday morning, weekend breakfast, every Saturday and Sunday with Claudia Lige. You don't want to miss that. It's a great show. It really is. It really does bounce along uh, and it keeps you entertained as well as informed throughout the early hours uh, of Saturday and Sunday morning. We've got plenty to do. We've got Helena Nicklin coming in with some fizz, believe it or not. British fizz, I believe, uh, because we're celebrating the Platinum Jubilee a little bit early. Uh, we're also going to be hearing from Rishi Sunak, we believe, Shortly, who's going to get up in the House of Commons and give us his version of how he's going to help us pay for everything that we can't afford. What do you reckon? Do you think it's going to work? We'll find out. The Chancellor coming next right here on Talk TV. Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.